Champions, today we have an insane guest, the craziest man I've ever known, James Altucher. What sets James apart is his fearless attitude toward failure. He is not afraid to take risks and has turned his life around multiple times. From building a fortune, he has gone to hitting rock bottom to the point when he thought about suicide and then made a comeback and achieved incredible success in various fields. He is a serial entrepreneur, investor, bestseller author, stand-up comedian, blogger, podcaster, also chess master. In this episode, we'll dive deep into the fascinating mind of James Altucher. We explore his unique strategies for success, his inspiring approach to overcoming life challenges, and all the lessons he learned through his different careers that we can use in our lives and in trust. I'm also going to share with you the funny story of how using one of his strategies, I got him as my mentor and more things that I have never shared before. Get ready to be inspired and amazed by a man who is never afraid to think and do things differently. Let's go. Uh, Avo, I'm sure you did a great intro, intro, but I want to say I almost feel like you are mentoring me on life more than anything you said in the intro, since I haven't heard the intro, <laughs> which is true. Like you have so much, you're, you have so much life advice intermixed with the chess advice that it's, uh, you know, had an impact. Well, thank you very, very much, James. This, this means a lot to me because myself, you are one of the few people whom, from whom I learned a lot, a lot, and I can't wait to share with the audience. So it's a lot for me to hear uh, such words. And you know, James, this is my first time that I have been interviewed by someone and now I'm interviewing him. So thank you very much for coming here. Oh, no, I am, I am happy to. I'm, I'm excited for your podcast. Uh, James, mm, you told me you don't click the publish button if you are not afraid. And you don't go to talk on stages unless you are afraid. Don't you go to podcasts unless you are afraid too? Well, you know, in each podcast, I want to make sure... And I don't really, when I go on a podcast, I don't know what questions are going to be asked and I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't really prepare to go on a podcast, someone else's podcast. But as I'm talking, I always try to think, am I saying something new for me? Otherwise people can listen to old podcasts I've done. Like I always, when, when you, when you're, as you know, when, when you're a writer, when you, or, or any kind of content creator, you have to think about, am I, am I, is it worth it for people to listen to this or read this or pay attention to this? Cause they have so many choices of what to pay attention to. So that's why when I'm writing or speak doing public speaking, I never hit publish or I never go on stage unless there's something in me that's a little nervous. Oh, what are people going to think of me after they listen to this or hear this or what are people going, you know, or what if people disagree with me? So I'm always a little bit nervous because that tells me I'm saying something new or something interesting. Got it. Uh, so I'm asking lots of questions to you during our calls, but this time I will do it a little bit differently. Uh, when I was preparing for this interview, I felt like, wow, during this six half year, I've learned so much from James that can be applied in both chess and in life. And chess players and listeners should 
should hear some of his biggest advice. So I tried to come up with the biggest thing I have learned from you that can be in chess and in mindset. So uh, I will try to put ever, all of your bright uh, thoughts in one episode here so that chess players can implement in their chess and in life. If you don't mind, I'm going to, no, to I... blender you, squeeze you, your knowledge that can be helpful for the chess players. You know, I, I don't mind at all because I often forget <laughs> what I've written. Like, you know, it's it's like one thing one thing you said in your 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 brand new course on saving lost positions is that um you, you quoted someone saying um when you sleep when you when you sweep the room, when you clean the room, it's not like the room is clean forever. You have to clean it again and again and again. Like often when I like have written my books or or I'm writing some article I I am recalling things I learned from some part of my life, but I have to remind myself often because, you know, sometimes the same problems come up more than once. And it's not like you're perfect after you, you know, go through something and survive it and then write about it. And then it's, it's not like in your brain and life forever. You have to keep reminding yourself. Or sometimes people will quote me back my book and I say, I said that? I got I to gotta reread that right now because I need that. So... Everybody, I, everybody is flawed. I'm going today to bring you to the point where I will tell you something and you will be like, oh, did I say that? But right, before, we get, before we get there, uh, I want to start, you know, from where many people, and we trust chess players also, yeah, we are having down periods, very bad tournaments in a row, few games in a row, or even if it's not chess, just in life, down period. And you were in such periods often. How many times you became a millionaire? Four, right? Yeah, maybe even more than that, where I made a lot of money. And I was never like interested. I never had money as a kid. I was never really interested in going out and building a business. But it just sort of happened. The first time it sort of happened by accident, which is a weird thing to say. And then I, lo I made a lot of money and I lost everything. And I could go more into that later. But th then I... Then it happened to me again and again where I would build businesses, make a lot, and then lose everything. And, and there, there's three skills to money, um, making it, which is skill number one, keeping it, and growing it. And for a long time, I couldn't keep it. I didn't have that skill to keep it. And it really is so painful. And you're right. It's kind of like, in a weird way, it's kind of like when you have a tournament and you lose all eight games or something something that probably has never happened to you in your life, but it's happened to me many times. And uh, that, that's also incredibly painful. You put in all this work and you feel like, what the, What am I doing? Like, what, what was all this work for? And everybody says, oh, it's the process, not the end, or it's the journey, not the finish line. And that's true. But in the moment, it's impossible to remember that. It never feels good. You can't say, well, cheer up. It's the process. <laughs> like. No, it's not. Like right then, it's the fact that you lost, whether, whether it's money or a partner or, or a tournament, like the, the loss is the biggest thing in your brain. Looking back to that, how, how, what's, what's the way it's why try to come back and no matter how painful it is, try to continue. Uh, my question is here about how many times you try to do suicide, once or twice? Uh, 
definitely in terms of thinking about it, there were periods where like every day, but uh, I don't know, like many times. Many times. So uh, tell, tell me about your daily practice, which saved you. I think this is something, some of the biggest things I have learned from you these daily practices that you are going to share hopefully soon and yeah how much i think it can apply it in our daily lives i think it's incredible please share that part and and tell us how did you come how, how did you invent that yeah i don't i i well i'll describe it and then it's not like you know i'm the first like it, it almost sounds overly simplistic but i think when you're in a really down moment like i was so depressed the first time I lost money, I, I, I built up a business. Again, it was almost by accident. It was like in, in the, b- the beginning of the web days and companies, co- many companies didn't even have websites. This is like 30 years ago or 25 years ago. And I built many websites for many big companies that never had websites before. So uh, American Express or many um, entertainment companies in the U.S., very famous entertainment companies in the U.S., uh, I built their first websites and then I sold that company at the peak of the internet boom and made generational wealth. Like for my, I, my family would never have to worry. And then I think I thought, oh, I did this. So I'm a smart person so I can do anything. And so I started investing this money. And again, this is like a long time ago and I lost everything. I didn't know anything about really how to properly invest. And because that was a wholly, a completely separate skill from business skill. And I still was just even a beginner at business. I was kind of lucky. I was building an internet business during the biggest business boom in history. And uh, so I, I, I made all this money and then I lost millions and millions of dollars. And I got so broke. I lost the house I had bought I lost, I basically lost my family. I lost everything. And you also, maybe this will be familiar to some listeners. Like when you're succeeding and on the way up, everybody wants to be your friend. But when you're on the way down, nobody wants to be your friend. So I couldn't even get any opportunities. I had no money, no job, no opportunities, was losing my house, uh, you know, losing family, friends, everything. And I just, I would just, I couldn't get out of bed. And when I did get out of bed, I would just walk around outside all day and just try to try to distract myself because I also lived three blocks from the World Trade Center, which and so the, I was in the World Trade Center on nine eleven uh, in the in the U.S. where you know I saw the plane coming in. I had just left and the plane was coming in, but I lived right near there, and so it was a horrible day for everyone. And but also. Uh, you know, and this sounds not so big compared to the horror so many experienced, but because I lived so close and, and I was going broke and people couldn't even, weren't even allowed in the area. The area was considered a crime scene for many months afterwards. I couldn't sell this house that I was going broke on. Like, so I had owed all this money. I was millions of dollars in debt and owed all this money, but people weren't even allowed to see the house to see if they wanted to buy it, which again, that is a small outcome compared to the many horrible outcomes so many people experienced on 9-11. It was just horrible. But uh, but so no matter what I could do, I couldn't save myself in any way at all. Like there was no way for me to make back money and I was going broke and I was going to be 
homeless after having millions of dollars, like let's say a year earlier. And, uh, you know, so, so I realized at some point I have a family, I have two kids. I had a kid just born and I needed to do something. I could, the gun was literally to my head. I couldn't move forward unless I got myself together. Uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't like walk around all day and do nothing. I couldn't just be in my head all the time, worrying and worrying and crying and worrying. And so I did kind of, I, I basically made it very simple for myself is every day I have to improve a little bit in four areas. So, and I'll describe it. I'll mention the areas first and then how I did it. So physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical is what it is. It's like, I had to make sure I slept. I was not sleeping at all. I would, I mean, I would stay in bed, but I couldn't sleep. I was just constantly in my head thinking, you know how you wake up at three in the morning sometimes. And it's like all these anxious thoughts go in your head. And I was doing that all, all night long. And so sleeping, eating well, exercising, all these things I had to do because first off, for the obvious reasons, like when you, when you live well physically, uh, you know, all this dopamine goes off in your head and you're just a little bit happier. You could deal with depression better. No medicine was helping me. Like I couldn't, you know, doctors would give me antidepressants. None of that seemed to work for me at all. And so I need, I needed to, and I'm not the sort of person who works out or goes to the gym. So I needed to, but I needed to do it because I knew this was important to basically protect my children from homelessness. And then emotional, I just needed to every day improve my relationships. Like I had stopped returning phone calls from anybody. I had stopped communicating with my wife really because, you know, things were bad for her too, because she was with me and I, and I was ruining everyone's life around me. At least I felt that way. So I had to just, I had to improve my relationships with my kids. One of them was a baby and I felt like it wasn't good I was so down. I, I felt like it wasn't good for them to spend time with me um, just because I was so, so horrible for losing their, their future. And I just had to improve my relationships a little bit every day. You can't do everything overnight. You can't suddenly do go from zero pushups to a thousand pushups a day uh, in one day or even one year. You just have to just do 1% a day, 1% better a day because 1% better a day compounded is... 3,800% a year. It's 37 times better per year. So, so that's really, even though that doesn't quite make sense, it, it, it's really important to, to know that just a little bit each day really changes your life fairly quickly. And then on the mental side, I remember Sorry, one time I was walking. To, be, yeah, before sure. we get to mental, about emotional. So you started to build a relationship with family, with friends. Uh, what about with yourself? I think just the idea that I committed to this daily practice was my way of, of trusting that this would help me. I didn't think I could help myself. I was so down and I hated myself for, for doing this. I thought I had, I thought I had won the lottery and I would never win the lottery again. And so I just thought I was hopeless. And honestly, I would, the, uh, Google didn't really exist then. It was Alta Vista was the search engine. I would look up at Alta Vista. How could you, how could you kill yourself without, without 
getting hurt because I didn't want to have any pain. Or I would go, I would not Google, but Alta Vista, um, how can you kill yourself without the insurance company knowing? Cause I had life insurance, but I thought that if they knew you killed yourself, the, your kids wouldn't bet, they wouldn't give the money. And so I thought in the worst case, my kids, I still had a life insurance policy that I had paid for when I had a lot of money. And I, I, I wanted my kids to benefit before they knew me because they were so young. I wanted them to, to benefit, but I couldn't figure out. Like I saw all these cases where the life insurance company would investigate and do autopsies. So there, there really is. So just listening out there, don't kill yourself. There's really no way to do it without pain. And, and also you might mess up and be paralyzed and still be alive. This is a little bit more. But you didn't make your suicide. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was like too dangerous to kill yourself. Okay. And, um, uh, James, and but yeah, uh, so I don't think you, you, you talked about, I think in your choose yourself book, you talked about the concept you learned from Kamal, whom I already interviewed and our listeners might be familiar with his love yourself. Did you start it? Love yourself practice then or later? When did you know Kamal in this practice? No, because I, I didn't know Kamal for another eight years or seven years after that. So Kamal, huh. I got to know because he was reading um, some of my articles and um, he he wrote to me because his um, he emailed me out of the blue. He was having, he had some questions about a business he was involved in and I really, you know, I, I, you'll, you, when we get to the mental, you'll see, I like really work hard when people ask me questions like that. So I sent him all these ideas for his business. I didn't know him okay, at all. Got it. And then Let, let's go to mental. Yeah. Let's go to mental. Yeah. But so mainly emotional, um, part with yourself, you just started a little bit more respect to you that you are committed to come back. Right. Yeah. And I, I was committed to doing this practice with the idea that hopefully it would help me ultimately. And, and it was surprising. Well, I'll tell the results in a second, but so with the mental, it was really about, uh, learning and creativity. So instead of just being depressed for myself all the time, I started, I, I found, I went to this restaurant supplies store and I saw this box of waiters pads, you know, the little pads that waiters use when they write, take your order in a restaurant. Yep. And so I bought this box of a hundred waiters pads for like $10. And I started every day in the morning. The first thing I would do is I'd go have a coffee and I'd write down 10 ideas. So I wrote 10 ideas for myself every day. And I remember the first list of ideas I had, I wanted to write a book, how to beat your friends at every game in the universe. So I had every game I could think of and tips to win. So I don't know if you have Scrabble. Have you ever played Scrabble? Do you know that game? Uh, not much, but I have learned about it once we talked about it, then I checked it out. But I remember clearly your advice in uh, Monopoly. <laughs> oh, yeah, Monopoly. I, wrote, I, I had Monopoly in there and, and how you have to land on the, on, like, the orange properties, uh, New York Avenue. Orange and, properties, and so because and, in orange properties, it's, it's hot. What was in orange? Um, uh, St. James Place, New York Avenue. Um, I forgot the other one, Tennessee Place. Or Tennessee you get Avenue. there bec because seven is the oh, most common dice it was, right? Right. And so the square that people land on the most in Monopoly is the jail because there's, you not only can land on the jail from dice, but there are two cards 
that say go to jail immediately. And there's another square that says go to jail immediately. So there's four different ways to go to jail. And, uh, and then seven is the most common dice roll. And that puts you right in the middle of the orange properties. So if you own the hotels hey, listen there, up. So paying rent. <laughs> if, even if you don't learn anything from today's episode, anything from for your chest or life, at least you will know how to beat your friend at Monopoly. <laughs> You will crush a monopoly if you just build hotels as quickly as possible on monopoly. Oh, here's another technique. Don't build hotels, just do houses because when they when they when the set runs out of houses, the rule is nobody else could build houses. So use all the houses and never convert to a hotel. Anyway, that's getting a little too technical. <laughs> But I had tips for every single game, including chess. Chess was the hardest one because I know it's not there's no simple solution in chess as I keep finding out all too much. But uh uh But anyway, I would come up with these 10 ideas a day and I was getting really excited. Like suddenly, I, after a few weeks, I noticed in my brain as if I was rewiring my neurons. Like suddenly I was excited about my ideas and I wanted to do things. So it's not, you can't really think your way out of being depressed or you, you can't think your way into being wealthy, but you have, to, you have to do things and you have to be motivated to do things. There's no thinking things, there's doing things. And so when I was writing these ideas down, suddenly I had to carve out room in my day to do some of the ideas that I actually wanted to do. And so I was getting just excited again about things I was creating. And by the way, when you're writing these ideas a day, the idea is you don't, you're not going to come up with good ideas. Otherwise you would have thousands of good ideas a, a, a year. 99.9% of the ideas are going to be bad. It's just about exercising that muscle so that when you really need ideas, like people say ideas are a dime a dozen. That's not really true. Like you're only going to get a handful of really great ideas in life, but you have to keep that idea muscle exercised or else you'll never have good ideas. And this was like, like if when you do exercises and pushups, it's not like you think, oh my God, that was a great pushup that I just did. Like, no, you just keep doing it to build up the muscle. Um, you don't congratulate yourself. Oh my God, I have to do a pushup again like that one. Like, it, or I don't need to do pushups anymore. Like that was the best pushup ever. There's only a few ideas that are good. And then there's only a few of those ideas that you're going to actually act on. So, so that's why it's, it, you know, this is related to quitting, but you could like work on an idea. I like, I'll work on an idea sometimes. And then I realize, you know what? The idea wasn't as good as I thought and I'll stop working on it, but that's okay because I know now I'm abundant on ideas because I'm constantly exercising that idea muscle. And then here's what I started to do. I wanted to branch out and meet other people. So one day I came up with a list of 10 people I want to email and maybe meet them. And so I sent out 20 emails actually to people I wanted, people I admired who I wanted to meet. Zero people responded, zero of them. Because it's not like, it's not like Warren Buffett is sitting there and he gets my email And he's like, oh my gosh, James Altucher, who I, I don't even know who he is, but he's going to buy me a cup of coffee, hold everything. <laughs> I got to meet this guy. He wrote me an email. Like he's never, nobody ever does that. So what I did instead was I realized that after sending out all these emails and getting no responses. So I started writing, I started really analyzing all of their businesses and, or their books or whatever, depending on if they were a writer or an investor or whatever. And I would try to come up with 10 ideas for their business. And one guy, I even read his PhD that he had written 30 years earlier and gave 10 comments about his PhD thesis. So, or another guy I wrote, 
he was a writer. I wrote him 10 ideas for articles you should write or an investor, 10 investment strategies that I programmed. You know, I, I wrote the software and you could just have the code and the software and it meets your style and your hedge fund. So I was just, and, and I would always say in each email, you don't need to even respond. These are just ideas for you. You don't even need to respond. So it was, you know, I didn't really want anything. And I really felt that way. I didn't really want anything. I just wanted to give them, I had this mindset. I just wanted to give them as much value as possible. I wasn't trying to do a transaction. And three people out of the 20 responded. And one of those people uh, gave me my first ever writing job where he would, you know, pay me $200 an article for articles I would write for his website. And here I had, I had millions the year before, but I was so happy to just get $200 per article. Like this was incredible. And I loved, I had been a writer for 10 years. This is the first time I was getting published in anything and getting paid to write. I was so excited. Another guy really liked the hedge fund manager, really liked the software I had written and the strategies. So we met many times and he actually was a chess player as well. And um, eventually he, he invested money. He said, why don't can you, you know, I'll, he, he was allowed to keep track of the money also, but every day I would use my software to trade his money. And so now suddenly I was in business as a hedge fund manager, a position I had never had before. Like usually you need degrees and work for a bank and so on. But now this guy invested money with me. And another guy I actually didn't respond to, but then I responded 10 years later and said, okay, can you come on my, or 13 years later, I said, could you come on my podcast? And he responded right away, of course. So um, that was another person. And uh, so just just writing these ideas down and then sending them with the thought of not getting anything from it. And you know, this is why 10 years later, I responded to Kamal the first time he emailed me and we got to be very good friends as, as a result. There's so many benefits to writing these 10 ideas a day. You feel good. It's like your brain gets rewired. Your, your ideas get better, not necessarily good, but better. And you potentially can meet people. Like before I go to any meeting, I always write down 10 ideas. Or I used to write down, here's 10 ideas for Google. And I would send them to someone at Google. Here's 10 ideas for Amazon. I send them to Amazon. And so sometimes people respond. I've, I have visited Google, LinkedIn, um, Amazon. I flew, you know, I got the tour of everything. Uh, uh, Quora, like so many web, you know, companies that I admired, Twitter, so many companies that I admired because I wrote ideas for them. They would just invite me out there and spend time with them. And I learned so much from that. So it builds your network. It, I don't know. I just started becoming excited. And, and then the fourth thing, which sounds a little corny, but it was spiritual. I realized I didn't have any faith in anything. I didn't have any faith in myself. And so I couldn't have faith in anything else if I didn't have faith in myself. And so I, it's not like I became religious, but I also realized there are things out of my control in the world. And I just have to, I just have to work my hardest and nothing truly bad is going, I had to have faith that nothing truly bad was happening to me. Like money is not everything. I had a beautiful family. I, I would survive this. And and I had to kind of surrender to just the reality. I had to work hard, but surrender to reality, which I was not surrendering to reality. I kept, I kept regretting the past and worrying about the future, but not living in the present moment and just surrendering to it. I just kept, I kept time traveling. And, 
this ultimately, all these things together is like saved me where I started getting really excited about the world again for the first time. And I stopped thinking about what's the best way to, to kill myself. And I remember one time, uh, we, we, you know, we were still trying, it was a year after 9-11 still, and we couldn't sell our house. And so one time, I, somebody came at the wrong time to see the house, and I pretended to be the real estate agent. And, and, and so I put myself in the mindset of a real estate agent, and so I walked them through the house, just like a real, I had seen the real estate agents do, and they bought the house. So I was my own real estate agent for, for selling the house. And so finally I saw my life was changing because I was just getting excited and playful and creative about, about things again for the, for the first time in a long time. So that's this daily practice. But I have to tell you, I have to remind myself all the time. In fact, Kamal, every time I tell Kamal, oh, things are not going well, or I, I did it again, I'm, I'm, I'm broke or I'm depressed or whatever, and Kamal reminds me, are you doing your daily practice? And I have to think to myself, hmm, maybe I've let it slip. And I have to always remind myself to keep, to keep doing it. Are you doing it now? I would say, I would say, honestly, I could be a little bit better on the spiritual side. And I have to always remind myself on the emotional side to improve the relation, keep improving the relationships around me. It's really hard for me to do, which is why I had to like name it and and make sure I do it because uh, it's it's easy to get absorbed into my head and not remember the outside world really, particularly when I'm feeling down. I think I'm a very anxious person in general, and I see this in my daughter who was a baby back then, and now she's I don't know how old she is actually, so I think she's 21 and. Uh, she sometimes tells me what she's anxious about and I'm like, okay, right. And I, I've been doing this with her ever since she was like six or seven years old. Cause I could see myself in her. I, I said, okay, write down all these things you're anxious about and we're going to later see if they come true. And of course, none of them ever come true. And right. And me. so great one. She's learned more from that than I've learned from that. But so she tries to always do that now, but I should do that more with myself is write down the things I'm anxious about. Cause they never come true either. Okay, after after our episode, I will message Kamal and ask him to remind you to do that, <laughs> to do <Yeah>. your <laughs> daily practices. <laughs> it's true. Um, That's why I called Kamal no. actually a couple of weeks ago because I was I knew he was going to remind me. Uh, and but then this is why I have to keep improving my relationships. Like I, then he said, "Oh, call any time," and then I never called. So I have to, I have to, I have to always remind myself to call people back. Uh, the 10 ideas you always keep it keep doing yeah yeah and so for many years somebody people would say to me hey can you make a website that allows me to keep track of my 10 ideas and i said no 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 that's not the point the point is not to keep track of your ideas but just to exercise the idea muscle but now i create a little site uh notepad.com and i use it to keep track of my ideas and a couple thousand other people use it to keep track of their ideas now Okay, so dear champions and dear listeners, here is what you learned. If you messaged me and I have not answered you yet, you sent me 10 ideas. How can I improve chess mood? And I'm going to answer it. <laughs> okay, joking well, like, aside. That, that, 
Jokes, the day the day yeah. we met I, I i did actually write down my 10 ideas about chess mood like the like i prepared for our first uh get together you know yeah, you had reached I, out to I, me I'm, but I'm, then i prepared yes we're going together and we'll talk about your plus one minus one equal technique how we met i think yes. many people are interested how the heck we got to know each other uh, but to summarize so it's i think it's this daily practice very important so first is physical physical state right Second, emotional. Third, mental. And fourth, spiritual. Correct? Yeah, and I, and I would say, by the way, I was not, at least three out of four of those, I was never good at. So the physical, I never really worked out or cared about my sleep or diet or whatever. Uh, the emotional, I, it's really hard for me to kind of maintain contact with people and, and keep up improving my relationships. And the spiritual side, I never really had thought of before at all. And... You know, mental, I was always kind of a creative person, but I had stopped being creative. So this for, just a simple 10 ideas a day, 10 bad ideas a day forced me to be creative. If I made sure I did it every day, even days where I really did not want to do it, I forced myself to do it. And, and, but that was the only part where I was maybe okay at it, where everything else I had to sort of learn. And that saved my life. Like that saved everything. And, and the 1% a day aspect made me good at these things. You know, although, like I said, occasionally I have to remind myself to keep keep doing it. You, you're never a finished product. There is never a point until the day you die where you're finished being human. And I think the problem with making money is sometimes you think, oh my gosh, I did it. I, I am done now with being a normal human being. I made money. And you're never actually, that's the worst attitude. That's the fastest way to lose the money because you, you're never done being human. You said that when you made the first million, you, you felt you are very smart, so you started to invest left and right, right? And that later I found in your books, and you told me also that now how you try to invest in companies is to try to find a company where the founder is smarter than you and there is an investor who is smarter than you. So it changed for you. Before you were like, yeah. you were feeling you are very smart. Now you are trying to think that you are not smart. You want to invest in smarter people. Did these experiences with your businesses failing made you humble? How did this? How did it happen? This trans transition. Yeah, like you know, and this again, this happened more than once. So it was multiple experiences where I realized, you know, every time I made a decision off of my personal beliefs or intelligence or whatever, it was pretty much wrong all the time, and so. I really had to take a step back and and say, well, why is that happening and what can I do better? Because I, I eventually, I, I guess because I had lost all this money as an investor, I, I immersed myself in investing and read every book I could find and learned from everybody I could find. And I really realized, for me at least, the key strategy was to know a lot of people and, and learn from the people smarter than me and only invest when someone smarter than me is is investing or like you said, the CEO or really the most important thing is that someone smarter than me is investing because I know they did better work than me. They did more due diligence than me. And uh, I'm just going to, I don't need to know anything about the company other than that they are investing and I'm going to follow them. And that turned out to be the best strategy. I remember one time some company wanted to meet me, but I had already know, I had already known that this company was no good. But but I also know how stupid I am. And so I, I took another person with me 
And I said to this, I said to this guy, no matter, no matter what happens in the meeting, after the meeting, I'm going to tell you, you know, I think this is probably a better company than I initially thought. And you have to tell me, James, you cannot invest in this company. So I told him in advance what I was going to say after the meeting, and he should remind me everything I said before the meeting. And that's exactly what happened. I, I said, after we left the meeting, I said, you know, I might've been wrong about this company. They actually seem pretty good. And he said, James, you cannot invest. <laughs> it is a bad company. You can't invest. And he was right. And that company is a zero now. So I didn't invest in that. And, and I'm glad I told him to, to remind me of that. Cause I, I, I believe everything everyone tells me, like you could sell me anything uh, and I'll believe it. So it's, it was hard for me. If somebody is like very, you know, enthusiastic and knows their business, I get very impressed very easily. And so I, I was just making investing decisions based on my own weaknesses. And I couldn't allow that to happen anymore because I needed to make a living. Wow. <laughs> even, even stock investing, e even stock investing, I always look up, like if I'm investing in a public company, like it trades on the stock exchange, I always look up who are the other investors and I won't invest unless uh, I, I recognize the names of the other investors and they're like famous, like Warren Buffett. If Warren Buffett's invested, I know that this there can't be anything horrible about this company. He, he's done his work. So, uh, I, and I actually use that as a professional trading strategy for a while. I made a lot of money. People would invest with me. I would then invest the money in companies owned by the best investors. And that was a strategy for me for several years. You have done so much in your life, James. So you touch so many different areas from building a companies, different industries, investing, hedge fund, VC, right? You were also VC, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and for several years, well, and still kind of I am. You are also a chess player. You have done so much, and I think there could not be a better person to write the book you wrote, the Skip the Line. And while I read the Choose Yourself, just to know you better and to understand you better so I can help you adjust more better, Skip the Line got my attention because I think you were the correct person because you skipped your line so often. You cannot just spend hours and hours, years and years to master all 20 things. So I felt like you are the perfect person to write that. And my attention got that you are going kind of against that 10,000 famous rule that I think many yeah. chess players are understanding it wrongly and they're thinking that, oh, I'm seeing sometimes on Twitter, I got my 565 hours and they don't speak about what they have done. Did they did tactics? Did they work with coach? What they have done? They just think it's just 10,000 hours and they will become a master. So when I, when I saw that, the first, the intro part I read, like, okay, I need to pick this book. Tell me, please, about this 10,000 hour rule and uh, what are the problems of these rules and why people are often understanding, misunderstanding it and doing things wrongly. Yeah. Um, so the 10,000 hour rule, uh, it was made popular by Malcolm Gladwell, but it was really sort of researched and developed by this professor, uh, Anders Ericsson, uh, who's passed away a few years ago. But uh, it basically says it takes 10,000 hours of what he calls deliberate learning or deliberate practice to become 
among the best in the world at something. And, you know, there's a couple of problems with that. First off, uh, what does it mean, the best in the world? Like if you put in, if I put in 10,000 hours in chess right now, I'm not going to be able to play, you know, you or Magnus Carlsen or whatever in, in chess and, and easily Me win. maybe. Me maybe, but Carlsen, <laughs> no, yeah. I don't know about, about you, but I don't think that's true. But, um, uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, what's the difference between be- – well, the other thing is how do you use those 10,000 hours? It's not just like playing chess for 10,000 hours will make you even – you might not be better in it at all. If you're just playing like Blitz or Bullet for 10,000 hours and not studying the games, you're not going to get better at all. So it's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, which means you do something – a coach goes over it, and then you repeat the same activity. A coach goes over it, and you keep doing and, and and getting feedback, and then doing again, and getting feedback, and doing again. So, like if you're playing a piece on the piano, you play the piece. The coach adjusts your fingers or says, "Do this, do this." Then you play the same piece again and again and again and again. In chess, it's very hard to do that because every, even though you're playing, doing tactics or playing the game. It's not, you're not playing the same game twice. You're not doing the same tactics twice. So although Anders Ericsson did a lot of studies on chess players, and in fact, I was in some of those studies. I was part of the research while he was developing this uh, when, back when I was a grad student 30 years ago. But uh, chess might not be, it might not be as applicable to chess, which has like a lot of creativity and a lot of, um, there's a lot of different skills that are involved in chess uh but one one thing though that was interesting i was the, the study i was a part of uh it was amateurs 2200s and 2500s that he, they were studying and they would look at um you would look at an image for uh let's say 10 seconds 60 seconds 2 minutes and then you would have to reconstruct the chess position so you would look at this chess position for 10 seconds and Grandmasters could reconstruct it in uh, 70% of the time. A grandmaster could look at a chess position for 10 seconds and then reconstruct it, you know, almost almost perfect, like 70% of the time. Let's say masters, 2200s, were like 40% of the time and amateurs, you know, beginners couldn't do it at all. But what's interesting is then if you show a chessboard where, with a position where the pieces are put randomly on the board, they're not from a game. The grandmasters were no different than the the beginners. So what he proves there is that it wasn't that the grandmasters have a much better memory than the beginners. Otherwise, they would be better even if it was a random position. But the grandmasters, because they had put in the 10,000 hours, they had more what he calls chunks in their brain. So, oh, the, the king's castle. So that means all the pieces look like this. The bishop's fianchetto. So that means the other bishops there. There's an isolated queen's point. So they know more things about chess that allow them to pee. They don't have to remember all 64 squares. They remember a few themes and they could put together the whole board. So that was interesting. But my, my whole idea was, oh, there's always things you can do to speed up this 10,000 hours. Like, let's say you study chess, but you never study openings. Oh, well, imagine if you had just studied a few openings you would your win rate would increase a lot. Uh, same thing with end games. Same thing with uh, studying tactics. So there's always ways to to skip the line. So uh, 
you know, I was a writer. And when you write a book, if you, a lot of people think, oh, I have to go through a publisher. Like there's publishers in the US like Random House or Simon & Schuster. Oh, I have to go through a publisher and then publish my book. I can't publish my book unless I have a publisher. Well, this is just simply not true. So there was a period in my life where I had already written and published a couple of books with the mainstream publisher, but I didn't like it. Like it, you have to wait years. First off, someone has to read your book and like it. Then some group has to meet at the publisher and say, oh, this guy's book is good. We'll, we'll buy it. And then it takes another year and a half before they publish it. And then they probably don't do a good job marketing it because that's not what they do. So when Amazon started doing self-publishing, I realized, oh, I could upload a I can write a book in a weekend even, upload it, and I can make a paperback, hardcover, audiobook, Kindle, and now it's published. And I don't have to wait years anymore. And I would say my best-selling book, Choose Yourself, even though I had published with many publishers already at that point, that book is my only book to sell over a million copies, and I had completely self-published it. Uh, uh, but I, I did it, you know, I hired a designer, I hired an editor, uh, I really treated it as if it was a professional published book, but I published it and and on Amazon. And that's a way I skip the line often with publishing. Or another time, I shot a bunch of videos. A friend of mine shot videos based on that book, Choose Yourself, but we couldn't get any TV company to to buy the series. It was a whole series about Choose Yourself. So I asked myself, well, I can upload books to Amazon could I do this with a TV series? So we uploaded the entire TV series to Amazon and it's on Amazon Prime Video. And if you search Choose Yourself there, it it looks like any other TV series. You can't tell that we just simply uploaded it ourselves. We weren't like a production company or a movie studio or anything. And it's just there. Or here's the other thing. And I always do experiments, which, so I wanted to be, during COVID, I wanted to um, be in the top 10 movies in the country. And so there was one week, we took a couple episodes of this Choose Yourself series and put them together. So it was like the length of a movie. And we found one movie studio or movie chain that was open during COVID. And we, we asked them if we could just, you know, if they could air the movie for a weekend during, it was like in June, 2020. And they said, sure. We sold an entire $10,000 worth of tickets. So hardly anything, but we were in the top 10 in the box office in the United States for that weekend because nobody was going to movies during COVID. So, Oh, I didn't know that. You know, yeah. So that's an experiment I did where it was just, um, and now I can always say for the rest of my life, Oh, I was a top 10. I made a top 10 box office movie. <laughs> so there's all sorts of fun ways. You know, what I realize is that experimenting and trying things and having a playful attitude is maybe even more valuable than 10,000 hours. So I'll give, can I, can I give you one more example? Of course. So I don't vote in elections. I never vote because as a podcaster, I want to be neutral. I want to have people for who think every side and I don't want to bias myself in any way. And so people would argue it with me like, Oh, if you don't vote, you can't, you don't have, you're not allowed to have an opinion. You don't have a voice if you don't vote. So people would argue with me. So I figured, you know what? I do have a right to vote. So, I mean, a, a right to, to have a voice and state my opinion. So what I did was I went to the federal, the, the government elections website, uh, and I 
2024 is the next election for president. And I filled out all the paperwork and it, it took me about an hour and I became a candidate. I'm an official candidate for president of the United States in 2024. Now, I'm not going to take what, it what, seriously. Wait. <laughs> wait. Yeah. Like if you go, if you, if you go to ballot people and it lists all the candidates, I'm on the list because I filled out all the paperwork in an hour. And so now if somebody tells me, oh, you don't have a right to have an opinion, I can say I'm running for president of the United States. Of course, I have a right to an opinion. <laughs> nice. So what what, so, what, if, what if people suddenly becomes angry on both sides and they choose I'm choosing James Altucher and you become a president? Well, I'll say no because that will get in the way of my che- my heavy chess tournament schedule. <laughs> I can't be figuring out all the wars if I'm playing chess all the time. So the first president playing uh, chess tournaments. <laughs> Is that true? I wonder if there was. I don't think. I don't think there's any president known for playing chess at all. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of chess players who. I mean, there were a lot of presidents who were poker players. Uh, Like Richard Nixon was a a big poker player, but Mm -hmm. chess, I don't think so. Okay, Uh, so ladies and gentlemen, if you are not sure whom you are voting in next uh, USA president, this is your candidate, James Altucher. Yes. (laughs) No taxes anymore. (laughs) It's my first role. so, so this whole idea of experiments, like I did stand-up comedy for many years. Like I, I, uh, uh, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, and that's all I knew. I was already in my forties at the time, and I knew this is not gonna. I'm not gonna be a professional stand-up comedian, but I wanted to get good at it. So I made sure every single set, I would not go up on stage unless there was some experiment I was doing. And some experiments failed miserably. Like the audience would just be like, what the hell is that guy doing? But other experiments, I would get people to laugh. And so that was a way of, you know, many comedians don't do that. They they write their jokes and then that's all the jokes they ever do for years and years and years. So, but I was always trying new things every single time I went on stage. And I don't think I got to be great, but I got to be good enough to make a crowd of strangers laugh. And so all the time to get, so, so my whole idea and skip the line is there are various techniques and ideas you can use to, to get to be pretty good, not the best in the world, but maybe the top 1% in the world fairly quickly. Now think about that top 1% thing to get to be the best in the world, even in the top 100 in chess would be almost impossible, but there are 600 million chess players around the world. And the top 1% means you just need to be in the top 6 million chess players. That's a lot easier than being in the top 100. So it sounds intimidating to be, the 10,000 hour rule is intimidating. That makes people not do things. Oh, I don't want to do 10,000 hours just to get good. No, no, no. Do like experiments and, and you know immerse yourself in something. And fairly quickly, you'll be in the top 1%. That is always achievable in almost every area. Uh, uh, you know, you see it on chess mood. To just yes, maybe you can't be in the top one percent of tournament players, but just to meet someone on the street who says, "Oh yeah, I know the rules of chess," you could be in the top one percent of those people fairly easily just by studying your the openings you recommend, the going through the tactics quiz, the mating matador, and and all those courses. You'll beat the average player on the street. It's just like with Monopoly. If you buy the orange properties, you'll beat almost everybody. You'll be in the top 1% of Monopoly with just that one roll. 
Um, okay, so when I took the skip to land, at first I was very... I couldn't wait to read it. But then, here it is, James. I got... I started to fight with you in my voice when I was reading the book. This uh, guy's full of... <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> so here is here is what it's about. Like uh, there are certain rules. Like if you know, like let's say in Monopolies, seven is the most dice. So you buy that properties, you are get, going better. Mm, if you if if you want to go with chess, there are certain things you can do, and you can speed up your ten thousand. For example, if you have a best coach possible, if you have the best platform, best things you need, you you have to you you know to do. But when I found in your book the word experiment. So you called it instead of ten thousand hour rules, ten thousand experiments. So the experiment word, it's like uh, there are lots of people I see in the chess world, especially they are doing lots of bad experiments. So where is the balance yeah, of point. doing experiments? Uh, so and and what's the balance that you you skip that bad experiments too? Yeah. Right. Well, like I mentioned with, with stand-up comedy, I would come up with an idea for an experiment and sometimes it would be bad. And you get just as bad as it is to lose a chess game, it's even worse to bomb or to, 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 to do poorly in comedy because you're standing on a stage and everyone – and you're supposed to be making people laugh. And there's a, maybe 200 people in the room and the lights are out because all the lights are on you and you don't hear a, you make a joke and you don't hear anything like that just feels like you walk home and you just, it feels so horrible. Like, Oh, people just hate me. They did. It's not that they didn't even laugh to be polite. Like they just hate it. They wanted me off the stage. And so, so it's hard in those times to do like one time I went on a New York city subway and I wanted to practice. I did an experiment. I wanted to, practice being in front of a very difficult audience. So I went on the subway, which is the underground train in New York City, and every and I would do stand-up comedy during when people were going home from work on the subway. So on the subway. So so nobody wanted to listen to me. Like it was just nobody. They they last they're tired from work. They're going home. The last thing is they want some guy, you know, standing in the middle of the subway telling, you know, okay, mediocre jokes. And, but I did it over and over to get good at that type of audience. That's an example of an experiment is like you isolate something you're bad at and you figure out how to experiment to quickly get much better at it. So because I couldn't get on stage 50 times in a day, every, every subway stop, I would switch cars. So I had a brand new audience every three minutes. And that was an experiment I did to very quickly get good at something I was weak at. And so sometimes that could be the experiment. You also have to risk failure with every experiment. The nature of an experiment is that most experiments fail. So Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, but he he experimented 10,000 times before he had the right light bulb. And somebody asked him, how does it feel to fail almost 10,000 times? And he said, on the contrary, I learned how to not make a light bulb 10,000 times. So it changes your relationship with failure to do these experiments. The whole idea of an experiment is you have a theory and then you test your theory, and the theory most likely will not work. And so most experiments are going to have bad results. But for me in chess, for instance, like 
I used for for the first years I played chess until I hit in the United States 2200. I only played D4, pawn to queen four. That was the only opening I ever did. I never once in a tournament played pawn to king four. And then 25 years later, I'm trying to come back. I switched everything to pawn to king four. And I, I've learned so much. And that's, at first I viewed it as an experiment, but I learned so much more about just chess in general because you get different. I didn't realize how different the positions were that you get from pawn to king four than pawn to queen four. Like I actually had to learn about chess to, to play pawn to king four. And uh, it, was, it was an experiment that, that worked out. Like my, my online rating has, has gone up huge since I first started this comeback. And um, like my lows, when I first started, which was a couple of years ago with this comeback, my lows were in the 1800s, but now I'm you know, occasionally 2300, but back in the 2200s on, on Lee Chess and chess.com. And, but I had to do all these experiments to, to kind of skip the line a little bit. Um, okay, so somebody is listening to you and saying, oh, experiment. And there are already people that without listening to you are doing this. Uh, here, are the, here, here is a few absurd things I've heard. I've seen someone saying one year he will not do anything else than, than just doing tactics. He will not play even. That's absurd for the professional chess player or, or a coach. I have seen a person who is doing this. He's saying one year he will do just study openings. Another year he will study middle game. The third year he will study end games. And the fourth year he will start playing. As a professional coach, you know, it's absurd. It should be always study, practice, fix together. So these people are are losing lots of years experimenting wrong things. How they should avoid these experiments? Because if if just believing in 10,000 hour rules, they can do wrong things because they just count the hours instead of deliberate and the best practices. Here they can do bad experiments. So how you can skip the bad experiments? I This is what one thought well, I was thinking about. Can you skip the line of 10,000 experiments? Well, okay, that's a great question because I don't think you really need 10,000 experiments to be in the top 1% in the world at something. Sometimes you need very few experiments, but but what you're talking about there is a really a really bad process and not under like those it's not just they're they're experimenting. What you're saying is the the bad experiment they're doing is never playing, but that's not really an experiment. That's just a bad a bad approach to learning something. Like in order to learn you have to actually do like, let's say I'm shooting a bow and arrow. Okay. At a target, I could read all I want about bows and arrows, but unless I actually pull the, the, the bow and shoot the arrow, I'll never know if I'm where I'm at, like how close to the target I'm getting. You have that, to, that that's what I, I said earlier about ideas. I absolutely understand. And I'm sure many listeners understand that you need to do, but some people is experimenting what if I don't practice? So how do they skip these bad experiments? Okay. The, the other thing that's very important is, uh, is that you absolutely, 100%, no matter what field it is, you need a coach. So, And that coach could be a real coach where that you meet them and you talk to them and, and so on. It could be a virtual coach where you commit yourself to studying their ideas and and learning from their life and learning from their experiences or going to their website and watching videos and so on. Um, it could be someone from the past that you admire. Like let's say someone admires 
you know, Jose Capablanca, you know, study all his games and so on. But that's not as good as having a real coach. And a real coach is going to say you have to, a real coach will guide you away from bad experiments. So, uh, uh, but I have this idea in the book, plus minus equal, where you get a real coach. This we'll is get absolutely we'll important. Get there. We will yeah. get to the plus minus. Don't 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 right. open the cards. We'll I get won't, there. I won't break, it's important. Won't break your flow. <laughs> uh, this is what you said, James. Um, this is exactly what I thought about. That maybe uh, the way to skipping the line of bad experiments is to have someone, even if it's not coach, maybe it's a friend, maybe a mentor who have done something you have done you you want to do, and they are open minded, and you can ask them if this experiment makes sense. Just to make an example, so you were experimenting to becoming a better stand-up comedian and you are going to uh, Subway and doing experiment by trying to do stand-up there. If you ask that to some of your favorite comedians, they would probably approve your idea of experiment and they would say, yes, you can do that, right? And the same way if these chess players who are practicing experimenting not practicing if they ask to someone some some good coach they might say it's bad experiment don't do that so this is exactly what i wanted to hear that if you have an open-minded coach who has open-minded and not just right yes no yes no but is open to experiments that can be a huge step forward yeah absolutely because again it's like with me with investing if i had just done it all by myself, all the time, I would just, I would never ever succeed at all. But it was by studying um, the approaches of people better than me and also talking to people better than me. Like uh, that's how I realized where I should experiment, how I should experiment. I had to learn in an area how to experiment. And, and with comedy, I was fortunate, I am fortunate to have a podcast also. So I would just ask all my favorite comedians on my podcast and while they thought I was interviewing them, I was really just asking for myself questions like, should I try this? Should I try this? Should I try this? How did you do it? And that was a way, a podcast is a great way to skip the line because you get to have, you know, people on who they're happy to be on your podcast and, and interviewed and promote their tour or whatever if it's in the comedy space. But I was just, you know, getting the, the knowledge from all the best comedians in the world, how they did it. And that was a huge, a huge thing for me to figure out what to experiment in. And, and again, writing the 10 ideas a day down every day gives me lots of ideas for experiments I could do. But yeah, it's possible. You just don't want to get into a trap because an experiment should be fast. And if they say, and everything you do is kind of an experiment. So if someone says, oh, I'm not going to play chess for a year while I study tactics, that's a year-long experiment. That's that's not going to be a good experiment. It's it, it's not really an experiment when you're doing something for a year. It has to be like a day or very quickly that they experiment on something. Oh, oh I'm going to try to play this variation. Short, yeah. Should be close, should, shouldn't be much. Yeah. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play this opening today and see how it goes, and then go to my coach with my games and and see how what I learned, and or not learned. Maybe the coach will say never play this opening again, and then I learn. Uh, so so yeah, it's it's really. You're right. It's important to have to structure good experiments, but one of the keys is it should be cheap, it should be easy, and it should be relatively fast to do the experiment. 
That's why I loved the idea that of just uploading my book to Amazon. I wouldn't have to spend a year and a half working with a publisher and then publishing the book. I could write a book about Monopoly, say, and just upload it to Amazon and see if it does well. Sometimes experiment can might need time. For example, somebody is a D4 London player and switched to chess mode openings. Now from that close standard positions, they are switching to the real chess and they might have bad results the first two weeks and it needs time. So how do they figure it out that, oh, it's just one, two days that it's going bad. It's not that experiment is failing. They should keep going. Where is how they should find figure it out? I think it's I think it's difficult because sometimes again you know Thomas Edison had to try ten thousand times before his experiments succeeded on making a light bulb, and chess is hard because everyone else is you know you're playing in a tournament is working hard at it presumably, and so you know then you, then mindset becomes important like oh I just went on stage twenty times in a row and nobody laughed I quit forever like you have then you have to sort of say okay but I enjoy doing this. I love doing this. And so I want to keep doing it. Like you don't have to, I think you have to be comfortable, really comfortable with failing a lot. If you're going to, if you're going to learn through experiment, because again, experiments will always create failures. And people, again, people say it's the process, not the end. And that's hard to realize when you're going through something. But like, if I lose a chess game, I'll be very disappointed. But six months later, I might be grateful because that's the chess game I remember and, and, and what I learned from it. And I realize, oh, the, the 12 rating points I lost in that game, you can make that back the next tournament or the next one or the next one. And it's not in the long term, nothing's a big deal. So mindset does become very important if you're, if you're experimenting because, look, why does, why does someone want to study tactics for a year and not play? It's because they're afraid to lose. So what they really need yes. practice in is losing. They, they actually need to lo- experiment with losing. That's the thing that they're weakest at. Losing is very difficult. And, and, I, and, and it's a skill also. How to lose well is a skill and it's very, very hard. It's harder than tactics. And so that's actually, if someone says that, then you know what they actually need the most is to lose more often. And once they get good at losing, they'll be great uh, chess player. Or, or you know, they'll move up from their category because they won't be afraid anymore to try things. Like if they, t- if if when someone tells me they don't want to play, I usually think that means they're not gonna, they're not gonna take chances in their game. They're not gonna make sacrifices when they should. They're not gonna, um, you know, take advantage as much of the opponent's weaknesses because it seems a little scary. So it's just you, the only way you can take experiments in a game is if you're not afraid to lose. Before I sacrifice a piece in a game, and by the way, sometimes I sacrifice too much, but before I sacrifice a piece in the game, I always tell myself, well, at least I'll be able to go back to Avatik and he'll tell me I shouldn't have sacrificed this piece and why. And uh, and then I'll learn from this. So the worst case, I always remind myself, the worst thing that can happen is I learn something from this game. It doesn't make the loss feel any better after I lose. I'm still upset, but at least... I, my recovery time it gets a lot more more quick, and then I get worried. Oh, am I getting too comfortable losing? And I still have to figure that out. Uh, yes. But you know, it's a it's a difficult losing is a really difficult skill, and and many people lose, and then they said that's it for me. I'm never doing this again. You know, just like doctors. I'm not comparing chess players to doctors, but 
a doctor will do surgery and the patient might die. And many doctors give up, but the best doctors get through that and learn, and then they save thousands of lives later. So it's very important to to have a always remind yourself everything we do is just is just we should be playful, we should learn, we should be curious, and that ultimately overrides the feelings of depression when when you lose or when you take something too personally. Also, when you th- are thinking in terms of experiments, oh, it's it's just an experiment. It's not. It's I'm not. Uh, this is not advice for doctors, by the way. This is more for the chess players or comedians. Oh, no one's going to die if I sacrifice this piece. I'm not going to die if I sacrifice this piece. I'm just playing a game or I'm just telling some jokes to a crowd that I'm never going to see again. Or I'm making a small investment. I'm not uh, risking my whole life savings. So, you know, or if you're playing poker, oh, this is just a hand in a tournament. It's not like uh, my whole life's work is dependent on this one hand. And so it's important to remind yourself, It's ju- I like the word experiment because it's just an experiment. Experiments are not as important as, you know, not experiments. I don't know what to call it, real life. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely agree. Um, coming to what you wanted to tell and I interrupted you, uh, plus one, minus one equal, um I think this was this was one of those things that you taught in the interview uh that you were I think with with Doris Howes when I was driving and listening to you. This was one of your skip the line techniques that got me very interested and it resonates me very well. Um please tell about Shamrock. What did you tell him? Yeah. How did you learn? And then and then probably will tell our champions how we met. <laughs> Yeah. So, so by the way, when I first wrote about this technique in, in articles, I, uh, you know, I forgot, I, I, I should say I forgot cause I really did, but maybe I did it on purpose. I don't know. I didn't mention that I had heard this from Frank Shamrock. And then I realized this guy was the world MMA champion for like eight years in a row. So if I ever saw him in the street, he would kill me if I don't you mention, didn't him mention him about <laughs> Yeah. So, so I invited him on my podcast and then I literally got the advice from him directly. So then I was, it was more easy for me to tell the story of, of meeting him and then him telling me this. And then I challenged him to a fight, but he said, nah, nah. So a fight or a real fight? fight me. <laughs> a real fight. <laughs> but he, 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 I, he, he didn't want to kill me. So, uh, so the, I, so, I'll I'll tell it from his perspective. So this guy was mixed martial arts champion, like in, I think in the late '90s, early '00s. And in mixed martial arts, you have to know many martial arts. So how is he going to get to be black belt strength in every martial art very quickly? How is he going to skip the line? So he had a technique he called plus minus equal, which I write about in my book. And the technique is plus. The plus means find a coach. The equals mean find your peers that you're growing up with, that you share ideas and you learn from each other so you both could be better. Like, I'm sure you've had that experience, like teammates in Armenia or yeah. whatever. Training you, partners, you, you grew up partners. With yeah, and then, and then you have to have a minus. So you have to teach somebody because you don't truly understand something unless you can explain it simply. And uh, so that's really the whole concept. So every time I have to learn something, 
whether it's investing, comedy, writing, uh, chess, other games like poker. I always, um, or negotiation or any of the skills needed for business, I, I always find a coach or someone I could learn from and, 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 and who would explain to me, you know, oh, do this. And then he would analyze what I did and then I get better. I would always find equals. So people who are my level and we would, you know, watch each other, like in comedy, we'd watch each other's comedy sets and, and give feedback and, and support each other and propel each other along the way. And minus someone I could teach. Even if you feel you're not very good, you're better than somebody. So teach that person you're better than. And, you know, like in chess, I obviously, since, since I was 17 years old, 18 years old, because I, I started relatively late, I, but right in the beginning, I had a coach and I had, um, of course, equals, people I would play in tournaments. And then I would have minus. I would give lessons to like my dad, for instance, or my friends on, on my school chess team who weren't very good. I would give lessons. And even now to this day, you know, obviously you're my coach and I have equals many people I play in tournaments and we exchange notes later. We go over the games and, and so on. And then I have a minus. I have people, the professor who threw me out of graduate school in 1991 is I've been giving him less chess lessons ever since. I don't you're know if he's gotten any that, better. And you're teaching him, him that H3 and A3 are the best moves yet to take a revenge from him. <laughs> right. Get my right. No, no, I try my best. So I don't know if I'm a very good coach, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, I very much believe in this plus minus equal experiment. By the way, did I ever tell you my, the very first person I took a lesson from was before he died, Sammy Ryshevsky. So yeah, uh, yeah. I had a, I had a, a couple lessons from him and then, and then John Fedorowicz, uh, in the U S was, was my coach in the nineties who got me over 2200. And now I'm making that climb back again. And I've had a couple of coaches who were great. And now, uh, we met and, and I, I liked your approach and, uh, uh, you're my coach. So, so now everybody okay. knows they can look at my rating and see if I'm improving or not. Uh, okay. So now let me tell our champions how we have met. I have got this question so often and, uh, and let's make it like public. So here is how it happened. I was driving and I was listening to this, uh, crazy guy who had gone through millions so many times who wanted to, to make suicide and have gone through so many things in, in life. I was driving and very interestingly listening to him. And then in the interview, he talked about this plus one, minus one equal. And it resonated me with me so well. Uh, did I tell you why, James? No. Okay. When I was going to Kung Fu, uh, I was not enjoying much my group lessons. I, lived, I liked more one-on-one lessons uh, because I was... Always time for me was very important. And I was feeling that the two hours I'm going with group lessons, I'm not spending it in the most productive way. So one of the things was I was getting annoyed very often. It was this. During the, during the training, I would get a very weak sparring partner and 30 minutes I would not learn anything. I was thinking I was not learning anything. And then once I complained to my coach, to one-on-one, and I said, coach, what's, I, I don't want to come to group lessons. Uh, this other coach is often putting me against the weaker opponents and 30 minutes I am not learning anything. And said, no, you are learning. Actually, you are learning when you are teaching. 
And then he explained to me that often he's putting me against people who are stronger than me. So they are teaching me. Then he's putting me against people who are weaker than me. And when I think I'm not learning, actually I'm explaining me some simple concepts and I'm really learning. And then he's putting me against equal uh, opponents. Then I felt, oh, okay, now I understood. So when I heard what you said in the interview, it resonated with me so well, the importance of having plus one, minus one equal. And I love the concept so much. So when I came back uh, to my uh, to office, the first thing I did, I went to... Uh, Twitter to find you and to write you. This is my approach as you were writing to people. I didn't know then your 10 idea experiments. If I knew, maybe I would say, hey, James, you are 10, 10 ideas about uh, how you can improve your blog or do better or something. But then I came and said, oh, this is exactly what I need. I love this guy. He seems very, very smart and I have lots of things to learn from him. So I want such plus one. Oh, he loves chess and he's interested in becoming better. Maybe he needs me as a plus one. Let's message him. And then it is what I messaged you. And then you can continue the story when you got the sudden message and you were already a chess student. Then I didn't know that. Well, yeah, I had already been a regular user of chess mood. And I really also, I'm like, oh, this guy's a good writer also. Like I've been writing for 30 years. So I really appreciate that your blog Thank was you. different than the 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 average chess blog and you're a very good writer and uh and so I was a regular user of chess mood like I was already going through a lot of the openings courses and some of the end game courses and middle game courses and that's why I was so surprised to see your email I thought actually your email initially I thought it was oh he has a new blog out because you know you send out emails when you have a new blog out to people who are chess mood students and then I saw it was directly from you to me and I'm like oh this is this is fun I'm gonna get to talk to him. And uh, of course, then I, we, you know, we arranged the meeting and we talked about business for several hours. And we talked about chess for several hours and have been doing that ever since. And I find the best things in life usually work like that. Like when you are committed to a path, then adventures naturally happen along that path. Like for me, talking with you and now working with you, isn't it part of the adventure of this of this path that I'm on? Because I was already, what a coincidence, I was already reading your blog and looking at your stuff and now you write me. So that's like, now it's another adventure on this journey. And that's kind of the fun thing about doing these experiments and trying things and saying yes to, hey, can you meet? Like, is that you have adventures that surprise and, and delight you and, and you learn from. And I think when people are, down or depressed, they stay inside themselves. They don't go, they don't say yes. They don't go outside themselves. Maybe they just play bullet. Like I know when I'm in life, when I've been most depressed in my life, I usually just play bullet chess since I was 18 years old. If I'm depressed, I'm playing bullet all night long, every night. I'm escaping from relationships, from work, from money. And I think kind of in a weird way, that's how my chess journey started this time. So I was having a bad time with, I had written something that a lot of people didn't like, and I was just having a bad time dealing with it. Like I really, an unusually bad time dealing with it. I didn't know really what to do. And I think I escaped a little bit and I started playing bullet chess like all day long. This was like in 2021. And I, and my, my wife was getting upset at me. Like, you know, why are you playing bullet? Why are you just playing chess? 
And I'm like, oh, you could sit in in the office with me while I'm playing. We could spend time here. I'm not going to sit in your office and watch you play bullet chess all, all night long. Like, that's crazy. So eventually I decided either I'm um, going to sink into this and just not get out or I need to actually learn and and be disciplined about it and not just play one minute chess all night long. And, you know, I, I would play thousands of games of chess. I would play one. I look at my streak on Lee chess and on my main, on the account I use then. And I, I had like a playing streak of, of 70 hours one time where I must have just played with 70 bullet, hours without yeah? sleeping. Yeah. All bullet. Please, and, and I wasn't even that us, good at bullet. <laughs> tell us how destructive it was. Otherwise I will delete and edit all this part about bullet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was bad because I don't. By the way, I don't always think bullet is bad, but it was bad in the sense that I, will do that again. I wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. It was. It was junk food. It wasn't like junk food. Yeah, I was just playing because I needed somebody to tell me I was good at something, and so oh, in one minute I'm gonna know, or in two minutes I'm gonna know if I'm good or bad. Oh, I was bad. I'm gonna play again. Oh, I was good. I'm going to play again because I like that feeling. Oh, I was bad again. Well, I can't stop now because I was just bad. And so I just, I would get into this trap of just, you know, trying to get the stimulation of feeling good about myself like, over and over and over again. I think that's why, you know, I'm not saying I'm bad about everybody. That's why they love Bullet. But Bullet gives you this feedback instantly about whether you're better or worse than the person you're playing. And, when you're depressed, you kind of, I felt like I needed that constant stimulation and, uh, and I needed to just escape my world where people were sending me death threats like all day long because of some article I wrote. And, uh, By the way, was, James, do you, really know the, do you know that the, the Joker actor, what he did before, uh, bef before, recording his 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 movies how he got into the depressed state no he played bullet you're kidding he, no there, there, i i read somewhere this is how he this is what he did before uh before the days of the recordings i i, I believe it because you get in this illusion that bullet is going to Oh, you're going to win all your games and then you're going to feel good again. And it doesn't really work like that. You actually get more depressed because yeah, not only were you depressed yeah. to begin with, but now you're sinking into this bottomless pit of garbage, which yes. is, you know, yes. You know, yeah. bullet you're not you're most of the time going to lose on time or at least I was most mostly losing on time. So you're not really going to learn that much. I I would say tell me if you agree or disagree. I would say one thing bullet maybe shows you if you if you only play a few bullet games and not go crazy is that how your instincts are doing. Cause you can't really count. You don't have time to calculate anything. So you're just making very quick decisions like positional decisions. And so your, your instincts need to be your intuition in chess needs to be very good to play bullet decently. I would say like, if you want to check your instinct or if let's say I have a new student and I want to check his instincts, um, I would ask him or her to, play maybe two plus one maybe two plus two maybe three plus one because then anyway i will see their instincts one plus zero often you don't have time even for instincts uh it is just I, time to bam 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 
so at least two plus. Yeah, one I agree. Put for bullet, yeah, not one plus zero. But here's the danger for me, because you told me that too. The two plus one is okay for bullet, maybe, maybe you said. And but then I started playing. I got addicted again. Yes, <laughs> just because yes. you said that I would play all these two plus one games, and then I'm like, oh no, I need to get my rating back up. So. I'll just forget the two. I'll go back to one zero just so I could win a bunch of games really fast. And so I got into that. So now I don't even let myself play two plus one because uh, yep. I'm like an addict and it, it was no good for me. I tried to convince myself it would be good for me and, and it wasn't. But yeah. I think the big thing is, is that I took that negative experience of, I mean, it was months of me doing this to the point where I was getting carpal tunnel syndrome in my hand. Like my hand was bad. And uh, I, 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 that's when I started taking lessons again and I decided to play in a tournament again and write a book about the experience, like really make this a useful journey instead of something that was making me even more depressed. And chess is hard because sometimes I wish, why can't I be interested in bird watching, you know, watching birds, <laughs> you know, then you go, you're outside. Oh, I just saw a cardinal. Uh, I'm going to write it down in my book. Like it's no stress. You're not like, you're not like losing at something or, or people aren't booing you on a stage or you, you don't publish a book and nobody reads it or you don't make an investment and it loses. You're just watching birds. It's a very healthy, calm thing. But I always am interested in things that are, and you too, you know, I'm always interested in things that are going to be stressful. They're going to be hard and competitive and stressful. And I guess that's just part of life is, is it feels also great when you when you excel and get good at these things that that you love. Yeah, yeah. So, test of test of the win, test of the something big achievements. Even the best cake yeah. doesn't test like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's, it's always way, good to challenge yourself. Yeah, I absolutely agree. By the way, James, you talked about when you are into that mindset, you get into the uh, flow of the life. Yeah, when we talked about plus one, minus one, equal, and how we met. When you said flow of the life, any any book that comes to your mind? Uh, I mean, I would say the book Flow by the guy whose name is unpronounceable. No, I, I was asking uh, about I, something else. My last finished book was one of your recommendations. Oh, I'm trying to think... Uh, what I recommended. Oh yeah, no, that book is very good by Michael Singer. Uh, yes, the, 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 I just and, finished and it. The Untethered Soul. It's beautiful, right? Yeah, yeah. I, as you said, yeah, too. Because uh, when you are getting into that flow of the life, and you are open to see opportunities, you are open to see open doors, and to say yes to correct ones, it's incredible where the life can take you. Right. Like he just, just, I'll summarize really quickly his story. This guy, Michael Singer, back in the seventies, he just wanted to, he, he got like a small piece of land and he just wanted to, and he wrote his trailer up there and he just wanted to sit there basically for the rest of his life and meditate. And then someone wandered onto his property and asked him to do like some software for, for him. And because he had this philosophy of, Oh, the universe is sending me this. I'm going to say yes. He said yes to that. And then he said yes to the next person. The next person, he start, here's a guy who just wanted to meditate. He started like a billion-dollar company just by meditating and saying yes, surrendering. It was the surrender experiment. You know, I forgot that he'd used the word experiment, and maybe that is where I got it from. Because then I was so intrigued by the book, I wrote to him 
And I went down to his property in Florida and spent a week with him just to hear it straight from his mouth. And I spent a lot of time talking with him and it was a very valuable experience for me. And it's always interesting too, to say yes to these things. You never say yes to just one thing. You say, when you do something, you're bringing your whole past with you. So like, for instance, when you did poker, you were bringing your whole chess life into that. So everything you had learned about excelling and getting good at chess, you brought into poker. And I call this, in one of my books, I call this idea sex, where you take something, everybody who's listening to this is good at many things. And what happens if you combine those things? So for instance, what happens if you like Japanese food and Mexican food? Maybe you come up with a dish, the sushi rito, like a burrito with sushi in it. So you com- that's idea sex. You combine two different things you love or two different things you're good at, and you have ideas that are the combination. And as an example, chess has helped me with so many other things. Like chess has helped me incredibly with investing. Chess even helped me get into like school because my, my graduate school, the, what, they were working on what the computer that became Deep Blue, the computer that ultimately beat Gary Kasparov. So they were working on a much earlier version of it. But the main chess player had just gotten his PhD, so he was no longer at the school. So they needed a chess player. I think that was the only reason they accepted me into graduate school because I played chess. And when I got there, they put me right in the office with the guy who made the computer, the, the chess computer, and that I would play the, the older version of Deep Blue all day long. And uh, uh, you know that's an example where I took my interest in computers, but my interest in chess combined helped me work on a chess computer. And so always take advantage of everything you have and come up with the ideas that are the intersection because that's, that's a huge skip the line technique. You could be the best in the world at the intersection of all the things you're interested in. So make so so what does that what does that intersection look like? Make yourself the best in the world of that intersection, and you're going to be super successful. That's the case with all my all of my worst businesses did not do this. All of my best businesses did do this. So it's very key. This whole idea of idea sex. You had also similar to that idea sex borrowing hours, right? When you some of you, some of your experiences you take from one uh, industry to another. Yeah. So like I do a lot of public speaking and I've done this for 20, 30 years, almost 20 years. And, uh, after I did stand up comedy for a couple years, I started doing more public speaking again. And I would borrow all the skills I learned from stand up comedy when, you know, not just how to tell a joke, but how to move on the stage, how to read the body language of the audience, how to, um, how to make different voices. You know, mo- most of the time when people give speeches, they talk in a monotone, how to, you know, switch my in- voice inflection and so on. All the skills I borrowed from comedy, I was able to bring into, you know, giving speeches or talks. Same thing with chess, like, you know, how I got better at chess, I had Coach, I I basically did the plus minus equals then without saying that, and that's when I when I realized, oh, I'm horrible at investing. I got myself a plus minus equals for investing, and became a much better investor as a result. And ever since then, it's like learning a second or third language because I take all of these skills of learning into the next thing that I learn, so I get faster and faster at learning. There's one one thing also. Um... I was surprised not to find a section about that, 
and I think that was one of the powers of Michael Singer also in his surrender experiment. Uh, I was expecting to find the chapter in the skipped skip the line, which will be called "Be Awesome." That's really interesting because you you have like such a positive mindset that I think that's a natural chapter for you. I never think I'm awesome. <laughs> I'm always putting myself in the middle of the struggle. I'm always in a struggle. And maybe I, sometimes I should take it all the way through and relax a little bit and said, you know, this has really worked for me. I'm awesome. Because <laughs> I'm always thinking, what's the next What's the next experiment? What's the next thing I'm going to struggle with and have pain with? And uh, uh, I never take a time to to look back and say, oh, I did it. I'm awesome. And maybe because I'm afraid I'm going to lose everything once I do that. I don't know. Uh, maybe you can send some survey and add in your blog instead of saying, uh, write your email uh, and you will get my new articles. Maybe you put some survey and say, guys, from one to 10, how awesome do you think I am? And figured it out. Because personally, I think <laughs> I you are awesome. Uh uh, well, well, and, thank you so much. I I appreciate that, but I I don't think I could do that survey. I think I would it would it it uh, I would be that would be something I would be too afraid to hit publish. So maybe I need to do that now. Yes, yes, you are saying if I'm afraid, yes, then do that. Make that experiment. I think nobody have done yet. Yeah, put one to ten, just one question. How awesome I, I am, and see it. Yes. Um, <laughs> there are uh, not only you who are into this thing that I'm interested in, like mindset, life, business, and who also plays chess. There are other people, but it worked for us. And the same way, if I was an asshole, probably it would not work for us. And I would not learn so much from you and you would not learn from me trust. The same way I think for Michael Singer, the impression I got from his book, he was very spiritual. He tried always to do good things. He always tried to do kind things. He always tried to follow his heart. I felt his he was awesome all the time that even when he went to prison to meet the people in the prison and help them they got they respected him he went to cowboys somewhere in the fields they respected him i felt it's not just he it was he was open to life flows but he was his awesomeness was taking him to good places so i felt that this be awesome is is a, is a is a skip the line technique which you didn't include yeah you're you're really right like i uh, like the closest I get to it is by is like what I said earlier about I feel like I'm on an, on an exciting journey by by surrendering and saying yeah by by basically doing Michael Singer's surrender experiment like that's a key part of the spiritual is always everyday surrendering and it's interesting because I had this experience lately where you know I was asked to speak at the at this co conference the Norway summit but it was organized by the Norway chess people so. We were all in the same hotel, the business, the people speaking in the conference and attending the conference and all the best chess players in the world, including Magnus, Sakaro, and so on, because they were playing in the Norway chess tournament at the exact same time. And I got to watch their games just like two feet from them and, and talk to them and, and learn from them. And I was, the people at the Norway conference don't know this, but I was going to say no. And I... They, I, they had kept emailing me like, are you coming? Are you coming? Like, where are you? Why aren't you responding? And, and I was just nervous to tell them, oh, I'm not going. I'm sorry. Cause I didn't want to, I just didn't want to go. I, I, I initially was like, oh, it's a big trip. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to stay at my desk 
and do what I do all the time. And my, my wife said, no, you have to, you have to be out there. You have to say yes. And how are you going to have your adventures, your journey? Think about the book you're writing about this. And she was right. I was not surrendering. This was like this amazing adventure that was, that they were asking me to be like, why were they asking me? It's, It's because I was, they knew I was on this journey. And so I wasn't surrendering. And so she was right. I said, yes. And it was a phenomenal, like best experience, like to go to this thing. And, and you encouraged me as well. Like, Oh, do this, this, this while you're there. And I, I, you know, try to do all those things. And it was just an amazing part of this journey, this, this adventure. And I think saying yes creates these adventures for you. And I wrote a book about saying no. I wrote a book called The Power of No. But saying yes is a much more powerful tool. You know, you, know, you need to, to write another book saying, saying yes. And then another book, How to Find the Balance. Yeah, it's key finding a balance. But you know, like in improv comedy, so there's, there's many kinds of comedy, right? There's stand-up comedy where you go on a stage and make jokes. And then there's improv comedy where you're in a group and someone gives you a premise uh, and you have, you always have to say, you can't say no to any premise. You always have to say, and yes, uh, uh, you know, to every premise, like, uh, you know, you have to go along with it. And, and I wasn't quite doing that. I had stopped doing that with my life. And I, I said yes to, to Norway and I'm very happy that I did it. Sure, and and that's just it. Like on the, like life itself is this journey. And even though I have all these books that I wrote, I only wrote books about things that I was really hard for me to learn. So this daily practice was hard for me to do because I wasn't used to it. I wrote a book, The Power of No, because I was very bad at saying no. Like I was not responding to the Norway people's emails. For it's very hard for me to say no. And and like late, you know, just like it's lately, it's been hard for me to get out of my house and get out of my head and say yes to things as well. So you know, going to Norway was in part relearning that. Um, we are coming about the outcomes and when you are doing some things, uh, and this, this question I will ask for you for, for chess, when you play chess, do you think about the outcome? Yeah. And I, and I catch myself and this kills me every time I'll be winning a game and then I'll say, boy, this is going to be great when I win this and I show Avatech and I use that new strategy we talked about or that new opening we talked about and or or I he told me to watch the video on the bishop pair and now I'm using my bishop pair <laughs> to win this game and I'll catch myself and I'll say, shit, I'm about to lose this game because I just thought that thought. <laughs> and uh, like you can't think about what, I mean, you could you could aim for the win and you could say, oh, I'm in a winning position, but you can't, start fantasizing, oh, I I won this and I'm going to show everybody this game and blah, blah, blah. Or I'm going to, my rating is going to go up 20 points if I win this game and I'm going to brag about it. And you, you can't think about those types of outcomes when you're, when, you know, you just have to put your head down and, and be on the journey. So, so what, you should, I mean, you if should, I have a should, bigger, did you detach yourself from the outcome? Can, can you do that? You have to detach yourself from the outcome. Uh, and you, and like, for instance, much better, much better for me in a game is to think to myself, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm trying my best. I'm in a good position and whether I win or lose, I'm still going to try very hard to win, but whether I win or lose, 
this is going to, there's meaning behind this. Like I'm either going to learn or this is going to give me a story to talk about in the book I write about this comeback journey 25 years after I stopped playing tournament chess. And so, so there's a bigger meaning. Why am I doing this? Why am I playing, you know, spending so much time playing in these tournaments, playing chess? I had to, I have to have a bigger meaning. Otherwise you get just too caught up in, oh, I'm going to gain 16 rating points. And, you know, that's sort of meaningless. But when you have meaning, it gives you drive to to do your best. And you have to catch, I have to catch myself. Oh, I can't wait to, you know, talk about this game to my friends and other people and, and, and so on. Like that's a, that has no meaning. It's meaningless. And then it's a thought that doesn't help me win the game. Usually I lose those games. I'm thinking of one specific game I lost a few weeks ago and I, re- I was, I was a piece up and I remember, I remember specifically thinking, I can't wait to show Avatik this game. And then I lost the game. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm dreading showing you the game, even though I know we're going to go over the game the next lesson. You, you overall, you are having, you, you, you think, yeah, about outcome when you play. Yeah. You cannot really touch yourself really. I, I remember every time I'm seeing your videos you are sending me, it's always, oh, I, I won the first game. Oh, at the end of the session, I won four, lost two. Okay, I'm good. So you are thinking yeah, about the outcome still. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think detachment, look, and that's part of surrendering. Um, detachment is a very important part. But by the way, you can't say something's an experiment if you're if you're tied to the outcome. I mean, that's a big problem in science, for instance. People have a theory and they think their theories are facts before they really experiment because they get atta- they get attached to their theories and think that's the truth. So I think when you're playing a game, you're, every move, you're trying something and you really have to either detach yourself or part of detaching yourself is having that bigger why. Like, why am I doing this? What is, what, you know, Viktor Frankl has this great book, Man's Search for Meaning. Now, he wasn't talking about a chess game. He was talking about the Holocaust. But uh, so it's completely different things. But um, with everything you do, there has to be like a bigger meaning. Like, oh, I'm not in the gym to hurt myself every day. I'm in the gym so I live a healthier, longer life. Or I'm not, you know, the same thing with your relationships, with your, your, your the food you eat. Why am I writing these 10 ideas a, a day down? Not so I can have a good idea today, but just so I get to be more creative in general. And even this journey for chess for me, I've had to remind myself over and over again, everybody told me it was impossible that someone, you know, I'm 55 years old, someone in their fifties could start something he gave up 25 years ago and get good again. Not a single person has told me this is possible except for you and maybe my wife and and so on. Um, so, so, so I have a bigger meaning to this. Like what, what am I discovering about myself in this journey is I've had to, I've had to reform my life in a lot of ways to get good at chess. And this journey has become very meaningful to me regardless of what happens at the end, even though I'm committed to seeing it through, you know, regardless of whether I get back to my old rating, which is really ultimately not that important. It's, it's improving me as a human going through this process. Uh, I think this is a journey you are taking. It's, it's a must to take and you have to do that. And I'm happy to have part in this because over and over, I'm seeing students, lots of interest students, 
who are telling that now they are 50 plus, it's tough for them to uh, grow further. And what you are doing now, that you had 22 rating, 2200, you come back, you lost, you go to 2000. And at this age, you want to prove that it's impossible to come back to your previous rating and even go higher. I think this is a journey that you will inspire so many people in the world uh, that maybe you will inspire more than you become a president of the USA that you are trying to do in <laughs> next year. I hope that's true. I'd rather I'd rather get over 2200 than become president of the USA. So that's for sure. But it's very interesting. Like, you know, one thing that's very true, and I could see it directly because I, you know, I, last time I played in a tournament, I was, let's say, 28 years old. And now I'm 55. And then, you know, I started playing again when I was 53 or 54. And I can see directly what's different in my brain now versus then. Like, it's weird. Like, I, my memory is not as good and my calculation is not as good. But I feel I know more. I, you know, I, I've learned more about chess than then. I didn't know anything. I would just use tactics and memorize openings. That's my only preparation then. Now my preparation is more well-rounded and it's because the brain is, is maybe wiser or maybe it does better pattern recognition and memory and things like that are down. But the other thing is, and I had this conversation actually with Magnus's coach, Peter uh, Nielsen uh, last week, is that, and, and we've talked about this too, the chess world itself has gotten a lot better. So you know, I might already be better than I was, but, uh, but the chess world's gotten even more better. So like to be 2200 now is a lot different than being 2200 in the nineties. So really my goal is not just to get back to where I was, but to get even improve so I could attain my old rating. Cause you know, like every generation is better than the generation before in chess because of new openings, new ideas, new, new study techniques. There was no chess mood when I was a kid, you know, I had to learn, from I, I only had one book about the King's Indian, Geller's book about the King's Indian, and I would just go over it and over and over it, but I had no computer to tell me what the latest games were or how, you know, a, a, a great coach who would do videos about the opening so I really understand the ideas. I didn't know any of the ideas except F5, F4, G5, G4, sack the bishop on H3, checkmate. It's the only idea I knew. And if you got me out of that idea, I lost the game. So everything's oh. changed. So it's 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 a battle in many ways. Yeah. Well, I'm agree with 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 Nilsson that the chess world got improved. I think this, the same happens in every industry. I remember in the poker when I yeah. just got there, uh, people were playing very badly, and it was that time when people are, are were producing books, courses, and some of my friends told me that you had to be here ten years earlier than you would be a millionaire, but now you are late. Because everyone's everyone's now no like there wasn't such thing as like optimal what's it called like optimal gameplay in poker I forgot there's like a name for it GTO they called it yeah yeah there was not such thing there wasn't such a thing like and also people didn't really play no limit as much when I I played a lot in 1999 uh, I played a lot of poker like I played 365 straight days every night including the night my first child was born they they didn't let me in the they didn't. They weren't going to let me in the club, but everybody was knocked out. You know, wife and baby were knocked out from the delivery, so I went to go play poker that night. But uh, uh, 
then I just read a few books and, and you would play and hopefully get better. But there was no, there were no, like now I could just go on YouTube and watch a hundred videos. I could read the books on GTO and, and learn all the statistics. This, poker itself is a completely different game. And I, I, last week, Judith Polgar asked me at this Norway chess, why are you doing this, uh, this, this journey that you're on? And I didn't really have time to answer her because uh, we, were, we were traveling to the tournament. But, um, uh, you know, I, I would have told her my, my why, but I was curious why she asked because obviously I'm doing it because I love the game first and foremost. But uh, I, think, I think everybody's point really is, is that the game has really changed and you have to put, you have to put yourself through the complete struggle again to, to get just as good as you were. So tell officially why you are doing that. I'm going to cut that part or send the whole episode to Judith Polgar and point this moment. So why you are doing this journey? I'm really doing it, you know, so so there's maybe two two reasons. One is, like you said, I really want to show people that it's not impossible to pursue something you love at an older age. Whether you were good at it before or not good at it before, you can always pursue something you love and find achievement and success and and uh, satisfaction from from having such a challenging goal, no matter what your age. If you're 70 years old, you could start playing chess or start playing poker or start playing tennis, whatever it is today, and and improve. And 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 that is such a worthwhile experience experience. And I know because I've done so many things that I've started at a later age. Almost everything in my life I started at a later age and managed to get, you know, skip the line good at it, like top 1% or or even better at, at whatever it was I was pursuing. And the other reason is, again, I think chess is something I've loved for so long. It's so interesting to see more and more of the subtleties and beauty of something you love doing. So Joel... If you love something, don't just do it casually because you'll never really see the beauty inside of it unless you really immerse yourself. And this is if you truly love something. Try immersion and don't be afraid to be disappointed or, or to lose or to struggle. Like it's just beautiful. Like I've learned in the past year or so, so many subtleties about chess that I did not know about before. So now when I'm looking at a game played by great players, I can see, ah, I think I understand a little. Like in the Norway chess, I would just sit there for five hours while the games were going on and just without computer, without hearing the commentary. And I would try to figure out what was going on in the heads of the players, you know, sitting just a few feet from me at the time. And it's so, my thinking about chess is so different from when I was younger. Like, like it, again, I've, I've learned so much of the beauty, more of the beauty of it that I thought I knew, but you never re you can always learn more. And it's such a pleasurable, worthwhile experience. So those two reasons side by side is why I'm doing this. You know, recently I interviewed Akopian Vladimir and he said, and he told the exact same words. He couldn't describe how beautiful is the game. He would say, like, it's, it's this game, it's, it's, it's such, it's such beauty. And he couldn't describe, like, with words because it's undescribable often how chess, this, this can be really art and beautiful, the game. So it's very interesting you both said about the beauty of it. Yeah. You know, you know what's interesting too? And I was just thinking this, I never really thought this before, but when I describe, not chess, but chess history 
to other people, they're always amazed. Like, so for instance, I was describing to, to one of my daughters about the story of the Judith Polgar and her sisters. And it's an amazing story. And then I was describing about Bobby Fisher. It's an amazing story. I mean, they make movies out of these stories. And I was describing about, you know, Karpov Kasparov match. It's an amazing drama, dramatic story. And so many, like chess, you know, chess is at a level above because so many stories come from chess. You don't see, you don't see huge stories about the Monopoly world champion defecting from his country and, you know, the big scandals arise and, uh, you know, there's not enough meat to many things, to most things in life, but chess, there's meat. And, and, and it's, it's, it's a real thing where there's, it's, why does chess create so much drama? Just the fact that we're even asking why about it means it's interesting. It's an interesting game. It, it attracts interesting minds and interesting people. And it's, it's also a pleasure to be in that community as well. Like if you're a chess player, you go to any city in the world, whether they speak your language or not, stop off in the chess club and you're a hero. You know, while you know, you instantly fit in. Like, like, Avatek, I bet when you go to chess clubs around the world, you walk in, oh, you're a grandmaster. Oh, maestro, come, you know, you're treated like a hero, probably. I never done it. I, I, I did it a few times when I entered as a, like someone, I just learned to play chess. And once in the Norway <laughs> tournament, I entered there as a DJ and I beat the Jordan team. They wanted to kill me. I ran, I ran from there before telling that it was just ah. a joke. I'm grandmaster, but I absolutely understand what do I mean. Yeah, uh, it's true. Just, just, just connect, connects together. I'm, I'm absolutely agree. Um, well, just the fact that you could do that joke in Norway is an adventure for you, right? Like that's why yeah, you travel there because of chess. <laughs> You've been all over the world because of chess. It's, it's an adventure. It's, it's a worthwhile thing. Yep. Yep. True. Um, James, uh, before I ask me you, you the last question, so here is one thing. I'm sure many people are jealous for me <laughs> that I am talking to you often and they would also want to connect with you and maybe uh, for you some help. Uh, maybe they will send you 10 ideas. <laughs> I need it all the time. Yes, maybe they will send you 10 ideas or they will help you, uh, try to help you in chess or somewhere else how they can find you and what's the way they should try to connect with you. Well, they don't need to send me 10 ideas, but um, at, they could just email me, altature at gmail.com. As you heard in this podcast, sometimes I'm slow at responding to emails, but that's my email address. And that's really it. Or you can listen to, to my podcast, but you should listen to Avatek's podcast instead. And uh, uh, yeah, gmail.com. Email me anytime. <laughs> And you're not active on Twitter? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, Jay Altucher. And I'm not, I used to do Q&As on Twitter every Thursday. I did that for six or seven years, every Thursday without a break. But I'm not as active on Twitter as I used to be. Although I check Twitter every day. I'm not as active. And, so, um, and your blog, yes, that many, including me and our previous guest, Kamal, think that it's the best blog ever. Yeah, that's just jamesaltucher.com. And I, I appreciate you and Kamal saying that. And Kamal, and, who's been on your podcast, he's been a, a, a friend for a really long time. And it's I, I appreciate both you guys saying that. 
hopefully uh, once people go to your website instead of seeing write your email here is my and join my newsletter they will see one to ten how awesome i am <laughs> and they will mark you <laughs> well oh yeah you know i'm now now that i'm afraid of doing it now you as you know you tricked me because you know once i feel afraid to do something that means i have to do it so now you now i'm really afraid to do that and you tricked me into doing it i realized you did that on purpose very it's a very yeah. schemey uh <laughs> You had a scheme, yeah. but uh, now I have to do that. Uh, one time, I, um, I I I did an article where I titled it with my phone number, and my wife at the time said, uh, uh, "You can't publish this. It's your phone number. Like everybody in the world is going to call you." So I'm like, uh, "I don't know. I wrote it already," and she's like, "No, no, no. You can't do it." So now I'm like afraid to do it. So I had to hit publish, and that I turned this the ringer on my phone off. I had like 400 phone calls by the morning. Uh, I still get phone calls from that article I wrote in like 2012, but, uh, uh, no, no, but yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it to experiment. No, I will try to make this episode very famous and try to, sh to go to make it viral. So you get so many emails because you gave your email. So you change your email address. No, no, I always, I, it's just, it's just my last name. I can't change it to anything else. So <laughs> unless I change my last name. So, yeah, by the way, James, uh, when you said that I tricked you, do you know for chess player who, who is the most unpleasant opponent? Uh, no. You mean a name or what they uh, do? It's the most unpleasant opponent for any chess player is their coach. Because coach knows their weaknesses ah. and they can <laughs> manipulate the positions where they are weak. So, yeah, I tricked you. Now you have to change your website and put mark how awesome i am <laughs> <laughs> you know every coach i've ever had um i always think what would i do if i had to play this person in a tournament and so i always try to prepare a secret repertoire <laughs> just for playing the coach uh i haven't yet figured that out with you though so that's really the reason is why why i couldn't have succeeded that but um I think the key is really is is discipline, like that plus minus equals technique, having a coach and staying disciplined. So the difference between me before having a coach and now is I would play bullet all day until I finally decided I need a coach. And then just staying very disciplined. Like, no, you tell me, don't play more than six to nine games a day total. And then I go... I take the, those games and I go through chess base and, uh, you know, study the game, have questions, then we go over them. So it's a very disciplined approach to playing, uh, discipline, disciplined approach to studying, uh, uh you know, it, it, there's a lot more discipline involved. And also if you're improving, every part of your life has to be improving. You can't like sacrifice the rest of your life just to improve at chess. Like you have to become a better person to be great at something. And that's the benefits of improving at anything that's worthwhile in life. And I think those two things are, are very important. And you have to understand also why you're doing it. Like chess is very easy to do as an escape from other things in your life. And I've, did I ever tell you this one story? Ni 1992, I got obsessed with playing, of course, Bullet on ICC, which I helped start ICC, the Internet Chess Club. And uh, I would play Bullet 
I remember one time my girlfriend calls me at 6 p.m. and she says, don't forget we have a dinner with friends. They're coming over here. I'm cooking. We have a dinner at 6.30. And I said, I'm just going to play one more game. And she said, okay. I, it was midnight. She's banging on my door. Where are you? And I couldn't take time to answer because my door, because in my office, because I was in a bullet match with this guy from Israel, Segev. I remember his name. And I just, I played till seven in the morning the next day. And she's, as I was arriving home after playing all night without talking to her, as I arrive home, she's leaving to go to her classes. She like throws all her books at me. Uh, Cause I was just like an addict and you can't get better at something unless you really understand why you're doing it. And then if you understand why you're doing it, then you get disciplined. You take yourself seriously. You take the activity seriously. And that's how you, that's the beginning of getting better. So that's very important. You say and then everything else. Often, you say it often uh, during our meetings, you say respect to the game. Yes. Show respect to the game to improve. Yeah. You got to show respect for the game. And For instance, playing bullet all night is very disrespectful to the game or not taking into account your sleep or not taking into account your, your diet and not taking into account, oh, I should learn about, you know, the Bishop pair or end games. You're not respecting the game if you don't study all these different, different aspects in a, in a, you know, structured way. It's very important. Right. Um. James, you shared so much interesting stuff. So I'm sure people who will go to your website and mark how awesome you are, there will be lots of tens. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. And I, I hope this is uh, just, the, just the first episode that we did together that I'm interviewing you. And there will be more once you become... And, and vice versa country. as well. Yeah. And yeah, I look forward or, to that. Maybe my next big trip. <laughs> and, and, and hopefully... We are going to make another episode once you made the journey, once you get your rating more than you had in your younger age, before or after you, or your book comes up, then it's another episode we have to make. So please do that. And I will be there to help yes, you. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate everything, Avatek. I appreciate all, all of this. And thanks for having me on the podcast. And thanks for coming on my podcast. And hopefully we do this many more times. Thank you. Thank you very much, James. Champions, I hope this episode will help you to skip the line and achieve your goals in a shorter time and in a more fun way. To learn more about James' unique approach to life, I'd highly recommend checking out at least these two of his many books, Choose Yourself and Skip the Line. All the links, including his books, his blog, podcast and others, you will find in the description. Stay well, my friend, and see you next time.